Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my new podcast from The Recount with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Hanging out with us today is my pal Neil Katyal, former acting Solicitor General of the United States and a man with a few things to say about the epic drama now enveloping the U.S. Supreme Court. The state of America's judiciary is anxious. You've had the president attacking justices and courts generally as being politicized and against him. And with the death of Justice Ginsburg, the court faces a crossroads. Will it move farther to the right to become perhaps the most conservative court in a century? Or will it somehow find a path to moderation? In the technical parlance of jurisprudence, Neil Katyal is one hot shit lawyer, arguably the brightest shining legal superstar of his generation. As acting Solicitor General under Barack Obama, he was the top courtroom lawyer for the federal government, arguing on its behalf before the Supreme Court and courts of appeals throughout the nation. As a partner at the law firm Hogan Lovells, he currently presides over the Supreme Court practice once run by Chief Justice John Roberts. At the tender age of 50, he has, in fact, already argued a stunning 41 cases before the Supreme Court, more than any minority attorney in history, recently breaking the previous record held by a fellow named Thurgood Marshall. In his copious spare time, LOL, he's a tenured professor at Georgetown Law Center teaching constitutional, criminal, and national security law. Both in theory and in practice, inside and out, Neil Katyal knows the Supreme Court. He is the guy you want to hear from when SCOTUS news breaks out whether that news concerns the justices or justice itself. Since September 18th, of course, the news surrounding the high court has involved both of those topics and more. The gut-punch death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the iconic jurist who'd done as much to advance the cause of women's rights in America as Thurgood Marshall had done for those of African Americans. The declaration of Donald Trump that he intended to put forward someone to fill RBG's seat in short order, that his nominee would be a woman, and that he wanted to see her confirmed before Election Day the rapid-fire abandonment of principle and precedent by Senate Republicans led by Mitch McConnell as they pledged to follow Trump's directive, and finally, the unveiling of Trump's pick, federal appeals court judge and conservative heroine Amy Coney Barrett. These cascading developments would have been a big deal no matter when they took place, but the fact that they've unfolded in the space of just 11 days and just five weeks out from an election whose stakes were already existential has made them feel head-spinning, vertigo-inducing, and tectonic plate-shifting all at once, and also made me even more eager to talk with my friend Neil, picking up in a way on a conversation we started a little more than a year ago in a video series we made together for The Recount called The I-Word. As you could probably guess if you never saw it, the I-word was focused on the impeachment of Donald Trump, about which Katyal wrote a New York Times bestselling book entitled simply Impeach. The consistent thread that emerged from that book in our conversations was Katyal's deep and profound concern over the damage he believed Trump was doing to the institutions that are the cornerstones of American governance. And those same concerns are at the heart of his views about what's happening now with the SCOTUS saga, that ultimately what's at stake is more than Roe v. Wade, more than the ACA, more than even the outcome of the election, but the bedrock integrity of the high court itself. To understand why Katyal is at once so worried, but ultimately still optimistic, stick around as we first take a listen to Donald Trump and then welcome Neil Katyal to Hell in High Water. Judge Barrett was confirmed to the circuit court three years ago by a bipartisan vote. This should be a straightforward and prompt confirmation. Should be very easy. Good luck. It's going to be very quick. 
I'm sure it'll be extremely non-controversial. We said that the last time, didn't we? Hey, Neil, it's great to uh, it's great to be with you. We are. Um, well, it's great to be with you. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I miss you. <laughs> you had a busy week, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the kind of theme of this podcast is sort of the sense of this year, 2020, is a lot of people's sense that, you know, the apocalypse is nigh, right? Like all these things about it have unfolded from the pandemic to the recession to the racial justice strife to um, now it's like you thought it couldn't get any more end timesy. And now we have the thing that a lot of liberals and I'd say not just liberals, but a lot of, of concerned Americans, you know, were kind of they knew that that RBG had been ill. They knew that this could happen, but everyone was kind of holding their breath and and thinking, you know, somehow she would she would endure. She would beat back mortality. And then it happened. And I think, you know, as much as it was not surprising or shocking, the notion of it happening just, you know, five, six weeks before the election was sort of a, a, a gut punch, you know, a blow to the psychic solar plexus of, of every American who kind of is, you know, racked by the, the, the events of this incredibly uh, distressing year. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. And um, for years, I've had friends every time after I do an oral argument at the Supreme Court, I'd get calls on my phone. How was Justice Ginsburg? Did she seem OK? Did she seem frail? Um, and, and so on. And I think that there's been a, you know, a very, very strong attention to this over the last uh, few years, because Justice Ginsburg, after all, has beaten cancer, some had beaten cancer so many times. And, uh, you know, it's true that she also had an outsized influence on the court. And so to lose uh, her right before an election, when people are literally already voting, is kind of, you know, it is a gut punch. You're absolutely right. You know, we now have a nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, who was the kind of the front runner from the jump. And there was some discussion about others, but it was clear pretty quickly last week that she was going to be the pick. Barbara Lagoa never even got a meeting with Donald Trump, she was the other jurist who people thought might have a chance. But, you know, uh, again, you didn't have to read very many tea leaves to know that it was going to be Barrett uh, pretty quickly last week. But let's just talk for a second about the nominee. You know, when she got nominated to the U.S. Court of Appeals, you were one of the signatories on a letter with a bunch of law professors endorsing her nomination. And I looked at the language of that. You know, obviously it was one of these group letters, but it says some pretty strong things. You know, it says that she was exceptionally well qualified to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals, you know, urging the Senate to confirm her. It said that she has stellar credentials for the position, that her contributions to legal scholarship are rigorous, fair-minded, respectful, and constructive. Her work demonstrates a thorough understanding of the issues and challenges that federal courts confront in their daily work. Uh, you know, praises her strong commitment to public service then concludes by saying that, you know, she's first rate, a distinguished scholar uh, and enjoys wide respect for her careful work, fair minded disposition and personal integrity. And that, you know, that group, the signatories, including you, range from people on the pretty far left. I'm not saying you are on the pretty far left, but from the left to the right. And it's, you know, characterized as a bipartisan group of legal scholars. So I ask you now, just on the on the merits of, of her, the merits of Barrett, so to speak, um, what are we what are we to make of her as a nominee, as a potential justice? Because it seems pretty likely she's going to end up in that seat. Yeah. So to me, the issue, John, is not the nominee, but the nomination. Um, you know, uh, back in 2016, Trump and the Republicans said to make the 2016 election a referendum on the seat left open by Justice Scalia's passing away. They said, let the people decide. And 
now they're saying the reverse. And now it's not just, you know, 10 months before the election, but 40 days. And so I think the process can't be separated from the nominee, um, in, unfortunately, in this confirmation hearing, which I think is tragic, frankly, for her, too. She is an intellectual person. She's a lovely person. And if she's nominated in 2021, after January 20th, I think she deserves a hearing and a vote. But there's a huge, huge difference between so, you know, a group of a bunch of people writing a letter in support of Barrett to be one of 140 lower court judges who'd be bound by precedent versus one of very few Supreme Court justices where she could overrule any precedent, including Roe versus Wade. So look, I agree. Donald Trump had an electoral mandate in 2017 to nominate her to a lower court. Absolutely. But now we're three years later, 40 days before an election. People are literally voting. And I think that that mandate doesn't exist at this point, according to what they told us in 2016. Right. Well, let me let, let me come. I'm going to come back to her in a second. But as long as we're now, you know, we're, you, you plunged us into the process question. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the hypocrisy on display is pretty blatant. And I don't think anybody who is of fair mind doesn't see the, the hypocrisy on display on the part of Mitch McConnell uh, and his fellow Senate Republicans. But 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 in particular, in terms of, you know, the glaring hypocrisy department, you have the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham. So, yeah, let's listen to Lindsey here uh, in 2016 and hear what he had to say back then. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that in the last year, at least of a lame duck eight-year term, I would say it's going to be a four-year term, that you're not going to fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court based on what we're doing here today. That's going to be the new rule. So that's Graham in 2016 saying, use my words against me, and people are. He also later in 2018 said specifically, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, We'll wait to the next election. I want you to just talk about this, Neil, because it's easy. It's easy and right to condemn Lindsey Graham as a hypocrite, right? You know, that's like low hanging fruit, fish, barrel, smoking gun, right? But I wonder, you know, when you talk to conservatives about this, what they say when they try to make the argument for Lindsey Graham's change of heart or change of mind or whatever is, and I think he says this too, that the Kavanaugh hearings changed him. And I wonder whether you credit that at all, because the one thing that as I try to be fair minded about this, when I listen to conservatives, it is clear that the Kavanaugh experience was a searing experience for both sides. And as we sit here today in 2020, it is still one of those moments in American life where the two sides in the in the battle really fundamentally see the battle itself in a completely different way. So I wonder whether, A, you know, talk a little bit about, about, about that, but also whether, given how, how kind of controversial it was and how searing it was for all the participants involved, whether you give any credence to the notion that, you know, that was a turning point in some way that, and that there's any kind of intellectual coherence to Graham's basically saying, you know what, the world is now different, all bets are off, we have to proceed in a different way. 
So I used to work with Senator Graham and, and John McCain on Guantanamo issues um, back during the Bush presidency, and I thought he was principled and thoughtful and balanced and kept his word. And I don't really know what happened to that person. Um, and it's, to me, tragic that the hypocrisy um, has taken place, not just on some like political deal over some legislation over the budget or something, but something as fundamental as the crown jewel in our democracy, our Supreme Court. No, I don't buy for a second that the Kavanaugh hearings justify what's going on here. You can have whatever view you want of the those hearings, but the fact is Brett Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court. The conservatives got what they wanted. So, you know, it'd be one thing if they were complaining, as the Democrats, I think, have been, look, you took the Scalia seat and gave it instead of to from Merrick Garland, who's eminently qualified, you gave it to Neil Gorsuch. You know, that is a seat that's filled against the Democrats' wishes. Right. Here, with respect to Kavanaugh, of course, Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed. He's on the court. I just argued in front of him. Um, <laughs> you know, so I don't really, you know, I, I don't buy it for a second. As I understand it, some of those Graham comments were after the Kavanaugh hearings. So, right, right. you know, so there's a lot of factual problems, but there's just fundamentally a logic problem here, which is, you know, if Justice Kavanaugh wasn't, or excuse me, if Brett Kavanaugh weren't a justice, if the confirmation hearing went the other way, yes, I can understand the point, um, but not this way. All right, let's take a quick break to pay some bills, and we'll be back in a second with Neil Katyal. We are back with my friend Neil uh, Katyal. I want to do want to come back to, to Amy Coney Barrett just on this one thing. And I, I appreciate, you know, your position, which is, um, you know, that the, that the nomination itself is so problematic that you don't want to get to the question of the nominee. Um, but I, I think it's worth, I got to press you on it just for, for one more second, just because I think, you know, it is the question for, for most Americans, right? If you're just sitting out there and you're not engrossed in the Washington politics of it, or even in the the very important precedential stakes involved in how this all plays out, if you're just an average person who who knows that the court matters, you know, we all acknowledge that it's all but certain, not 100 percent certain, there's no such thing, but it's all but certain that Amy Coney Barrett is going to end up on the Supreme Court. You know, that they, the Republicans have the votes, whether they do it before Election Day or whether they do it in the lame duck. There are a few things that could screw it up for them. But, you know, no, no sane betting person would not bet that she's going to end up in that seat. And so for most people, the question is, like, should I be worried about this or not? You know, is this person qualified or not? Is this going to be a disaster for for uh, for the court? Is it going to be a disaster for Americans? Is going to be are we are we are fundamental uh, rights at stake here? Like, how much should I worry about this is, I think, what a lot of people are asking. And given that I think you you know her and have studied her and and previously thought, and I know there's a big difference between the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals, but nonetheless, I mean, it seems like you should have a, some, be able to kind of offer some judgment about whether or not this, this pick is problematic uh, per se, and if so, in what ways? I think um, that this is a very different nomination than the ones we've had before. So when Neil Gorsuch replaces Antonin Scalia, very little changes on the court. They were in the mold of one another. 
um, and Justice Gorsuch said so. Um, when Brett Kavanaugh replaced his former boss, Anthony Kennedy, again, moved the court a bit to the right, but not hugely. Uh, they were both kind of of the same mold. Here you've got a nominee, Amy uh, Barrett, who is really jurisprudentially the opposite of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, this is what Trump and the Republican senators are saying that's why she's been nominated. Right. Um, and many Republican senators like Josh Hawley have said they have a litmus test. They will only vote to confirm someone who will overturn Roe versus Wade. And so when you have a nominee like that, it does seem to me, you know, then this is where process intersects so much with substance. Look, they need a mandate for something like that. That's a transformative appointment to the Supreme Court. And so if you care about reproductive justice, um, you know, this is going to be a vote that is going to very seriously undermine, if not overturn, Roe versus Wade. If you care about the Affordable Care Act, which is going to be argued at the Supreme Court the week after the election, in which you have President Trump's Justice Department voluntarily on their own coming in gratuitously to try and say, Supreme Court, strike down the law and eliminate in, uh, pre-existing uh, conditions insurance for all these Americans, including the 7 million Americans who've gotten coronavirus. She's going to be, as according to her Minnesota Law Review article, skeptical that the Affordable Care Act is legal. Right. So... You know, those are probably different positions than what Justice Ginsburg would have taken. So this is like this is a big stakes hearing. You know, sometimes Supreme Court hearings don't and, and nominees don't matter much because you're not changing really the direction of the court. But here, you know, I think everyone agrees. Donald Trump on down agrees. This is a big change. Yeah. I mean, look, just in terms of the stakes. Right. I mean, so your sense is. Um, number one, she, she could very well be likely to be a vote to overturn Roe. Big deal. She, even though this case, and I think I'm, I'm speaking the truth here, or the, I'm giving voice to the consensus view that this case that the courts are going to hear on the ACA is seen to be pretty weak, right? I think that's the general view of the legal people that I talk to, that you think there's a chance that she could be a decisive vote to strike down the ACA. There's obviously environmental regulation, there's voting rights, there's civil rights, there's all of these issues. And if you take in, in total, in sum, the views that she's advocated over time, um, it seems to me that it's fair to say that the, the stakes couldn't be higher and that in, a, in, a, in an age when there's a lot of hyperbole in our political rhetoric, y your view is, yes or no, that progressives should be terrified by what this pick, if she's confirmed, could mean for jurisprudence on all the things I just mentioned. Right. I think that she is a very smart person. She's a lovely person, but she's a deeply conservative person. And so, you know, I think this should be very much up to the people uh, because this is a transformational appointment. And if, you know, President Trump can win re-election and hold the Senate, then, you know, I think uh, have a hearing then and see, you know, and, and see what happens. But to do this now in the absence of that kind of mandate on something as transformational as this, I think is a real grave disservice to what our American democracy is all about. You know, I remember reading this Adam Liptak piece in the New York Times uh, a couple months ago that made the point 
uh, just what an incredibly powerful force Justice Chief Justice Roberts had become because he was a genuine swing vote and that he was, you know, if he did this piece looked at the stats involved and sort of said that not only is he a swing vote in theory, but in practice he is playing this role that I think the piece argued that it was unprecedented in, in the, at least in the modern history of the Supreme Court, that he was, he was really guiding the court. That a lot of 5-4 decisions, that he was often in, that, uh, in the five. He wrote a lot of important opinions. Obviously, he's assigning all the opinions because he's chief justice. And that Roberts, the power of Roberts, the power of this for, for Roberts was, uh, was extraordinary. And I guess one of the, the question that keeps running through my mind is that, you know, conservatives all say that Roberts is a kind of a closet liberal but whether you buy that or not, because I don't think that's this guy, another kind of hyperbole, it is the case, right, that just doing the simple math here, you know, a 6-3 conservative majority changes that dynamic in a fundamental way. John Roberts, his vote matters, but a lot of the power that accrued to him as, as the swing vote, as the chief justice who's the swing vote, um, will suddenly be drained away. Uh, by the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett or any other hardcore conservative who might fill that seat. This is, again, another just another way in which it seems to me this is a transformational pick because it will change the power dynamics on the court in a pretty profound manner. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something to what you're saying here. I mean, the Chief Justice is such an institutionalist. He's such a dignified man. He has more dignity in his thumbnail than President Trump has in, in his entire body. Uh, he cares a lot about the role of the Supreme Court in American society and trying to make sure that it is not just in perception, but reality, a balanced place, a place where all Americans can come and look and, and find justice. And that's why you see have, some of his votes are, you know, I think hard for some conservatives to understand, like voting to uphold the Affordable Care Act right before the 2012 election and giving President Obama a huge victory, or voting again to uphold it in 2015, or voting to, uh, uh, you know, to strike down the DACA stuff that uh, that Donald Trump was doing or the census stuff. You know, there's, you know, vote after vote in which he has stood up and said, no, you know, law matters. There's something here. And just because, you know, people from a party that nominated me to the Supreme Court, you know, might take a certain view, that's not going to be the way I'm going to approach the job as a judge. As he, you know, famously said, there are not Obama judges or Trump judges. They're just Article Three judges. So, he definitely carries that belief with him. And I don't doubt that, you know, uh, that Judge Barrett or others also on the court similarly feel that their role is not to go and do the bidding of the political party that nominated them. On the other side, though, you do have the fact that um, that Judge Barrett is much more conservative than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There's no doubt about that. Nobody should try and hide that, you know, and pretend that doesn't exist. And so you're absolutely right that she will be moving the court to the right. And the question for the Chief Justice is how much influence will he have to over his colleagues, both substantively in terms of how broadly or narrowly the court is going to resolve issues from abortion to the Second Amendment to whatever, and also the speed by which they do that. Because one of the things this chief justice is so good at is, you know, 
giving for prudential reasons the Supreme Court time to gradually reach a position as opposed to just jumping in head first and saying, oh, you know, Rose overturned or something like that. This is, you know, the chief very much believes in what's called stare decisis, the role of precedent. So he moves much more slowly. Now, it's true that, as you say, five of his colleagues may say, "Uh uh-uh, we want to move faster. And, you know, that's going to be a very interesting dynamic on the court. I wouldn't bet against the chief justice on all of that, though. I mean, there's he was as a Supreme Court advocate, the best. um, And uh, as a chief, I think, has an incredible amount of respect among all of his uh, now seven colleagues. One of the reasons why I wanted so much to have you on the pod here this week is that, you know, I know a fair number of legal stars, so to speak, but you know the court inside and out about as well as anybody, certainly as well as anybody I know. And I'm, I'm curious about something we've never discussed in all of our talks. I've, you know, what it was that got you to this place from the beginning. Like, why law for you, and why litigation? Right? You are, you come at this in a particular way. Right? You are an advocate. Um, so I'm curious about kind of the genesis of your career and what it was that first got you into the legal business to begin with, but also particularly what it was that drew you to being uh, a litigator the person who stands in that in the well of that court and makes the arguments as you've done so often in front of so many courts in so many places? Well, um, you know, I was born in Chicago, come from Indian American parents, and for them there was only one profession, being a doctor. And that's all I was told there was when I was growing up. And, uh, you know, whenever anyone would ask me, what do you want to be? I'd say mechanically and robotically a doctor. And then my dad lost his job when I was 13 under pretty tragic circumstances and pretty blatant discrimination. Um, And he was never one to complain or anything, but it really did devastate him. And uh, he ultimately filed a pro se lawsuit. And he asked me, I was 13, to help him. And I didn't know how to do that. Um, And he filed a pro se lawsuit. And the judge read his handwritten complaint and thought there was something there and actually appointed him a lawyer. Um, which never happens in civil cases, but did happen there. And that lawyer worked on the case and got my dad his dignity back. It wasn't about the money. It was just about that. And at that moment, I realized, you know, law, which my parents had always poo-pooed as kind of like a a profession of, you know, evil liars. They called lawyers liars. Um, You know, I was like, well, you know, boy, there is something there. So then I thought that's what I would do. But I went to law school uh, and realized, hey, I love to teach. And um, so I really thought I was just going to be a law professor. And um, one of the things you do if you want to be a law professor is you try to do really well in law school, publish a lot, and then clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court for a justice, which I did. I clerked for Justice Breyer in his second year on the court. But I wanted to teach. And so I joined the Georgetown Law Faculty right away. I got pulled in to do some national security work. I became national security advisor at the Justice Department. I loved that. And so I thought my dream job, John, was like, if I could be national security advisor to a president, that would be amazing. Um, never, No thought of litigation um, whatsoever. And uh, unfortunately, then the uh, September 11th attacks happened, um, and I was searching around for what to do. I started working with some first responders and just helping on some legal stuff. But it was two months later when President Bush announced Guantanamo that I felt like I had to do something that, you know, pretty hawkish on national security issues. Um, But I did feel like the idea that we were going to create a legal 
uh, a law-free zone um, and an island with no law whatsoever to hold these people and to do things to them, I thought was just the most un-American thing. And so, uh, you know, at first I did what law professors do. I, like, testified on the Hill. I wrote a law review article about it with Larry Tribe, which I'm not sure anyone read except my mom. Um, And then I realized... I got to do something. And so I filed my first lawsuit, um, you know, and uh, represented a Guantanamo detainee, brought that case all the way up to the Supreme Court, my very first Supreme Court argument, and nobody thought we could win, but we did. And after that, all these doors about litigation opened to me, which I'd never really thought about um, before. And um, Barack Obama, he was a senator then, heard my argument and asked me to come in and meet with him. And I did. And then from there, he appointed me to a job at the Justice Department when he won the election and and so on. So it wasn't some master plan. But, you know, it is such a privilege to give voice to people in our nation's highest court. Um, And, you know, one of the things that has saddened me so much in the last while is that, you know, the court is being treated by the Republicans as something less than the great institution it is, and that it's just a place for them to win battles. But for me, like what I see up there, and it's to me so tragic that we don't have cameras in the courtrooms, because I wish everyone could see it. Like, you know, this is like the one branch of government that works. These people actually have all read everything. They're not pretending. (laughs) They're not obfuscating. You know, it's war up there in the sense of they're asking really hard questions. They're questioning each other. Um, it's everything you want in an American democracy. And, um, you know, and I, I really, really hope the Republicans don't break it. Um, so am I right as I listen to that story? And maybe I'm an idiot here, but am I? is it the case that you just told me that the first lawsuit you ever took part in made its way to the United States Supreme Court and that you won? Uh, the first one that I directed, yeah. I mean, yeah. I did have a brief detour in the Bush versus Gore stuff in 2000. Right, right. I was I was a junior lawyer on Al Gore's team. Right. But yeah, that was my first case. I spent four years really developing the case, um, preparing, practicing the that's, arguments. That's fucking um, incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Oh, I mean, like thanks. just I mean, just an incredible thing. Just, you know, that of all the, you know, I mean, <laughs> that you're that the first case that you were really in charge of managed to have that trajectory is I mean obviously it was life changing for you and professionally transformative but it's just you know a lot of that I mean it, obviously the topic was super important and it, in some sense well I don't know what to say except it's it's a it's an amazing thing that that was the case and well it was very terrifying and yes you know, I was gonna Supreme that was Court. the next thing I was gonna ask you might make, I'm like you must have been shitting a brick right <laughs> I mean Supreme Court advocacy it's its own specialized skill. Um, Um, Because unlike any other court, you're not bound by precedent, so they can overrule anything. So it's all about first principles. And when I was a law clerk, actually, Ted Cruz and I used to always joke, he was a law clerk to the Chief Justice at the time, Chief Justice Rehnquist. We always used to joke about starting a a, uh, Supreme Court malpractice boutique because (laughs) all these lawyers would come in and not know how to argue at the Supreme Court. So when the Supreme Court agreed to hear this Guantanamo case, first reaction was to think about those conversations I had about legal malpractice and say, hey, maybe this is malpractice for me to argue the case. And so I actually called Ken Starr and a couple of other conservative lawyers uh, to argue the case instead of me. And for various reasons, it didn't work out. And so I wound up doing it. But you're right. I was incredibly nervous and I didn't want it to be about me. I just wanted the issue to, to I wanted to win the issue. 
Um, wow. Let's take another break here because uh, I do want to come back uh, to not just to the present but to the future and think through uh, where things are going and whether some of the things that are happening right now are things that don't just have huge legal consequence uh, for the reasons we talked about before, but also hold out the possibility that the court as an institution is in jeopardy. So let's take a break. We'll be right back. We are back with Neil Katyal. Neil, I, I want to think about and talk about the stakes of this moment. Uh, and we've got this confirmation battle that lies before us. You know, back at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, we were talking a lot about impeachment. And, you know, beyond the the actual charges that were brought against Trump and the, the Senate trial over them, there was a larger question that you were really concerned with and that we talked about a lot, which was the way in which Donald Trump was undermining American governing institutions in a pretty profound way. You know, we've seen that over the course of the whole four years that Trump's been in office, right? There's not an institution or a norm that he hasn't sort of challenged and corroded. And I wonder whether, you know, if we if we think about this is just this Supreme Court fight is just being a piece of a larger story, which is, you know, Trump as destroyer of the institutional framework that kind of makes American government work. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think once you go down the road of starting to lose your principle, then these kinds of consequences follow. And I mean, the whole concept of justice, the reason why Lady Justice is blindfolded in the statue is because you're supposed to just make a decision not based on who the parties are before you, but what's the right and wrong thing to do. And I think an impeachment, and now we're seeing it with this whole, do we fill the uh, Justice Ginsburg seat or not, is the complete abandonment of any sort of principle by the Republican Senate. And, uh, you know, I think as citizens, our first duty has to be to try and return to that sense. Um, And, you know, I, I know that some of my views frustrate people because, you know, I don't think you can just view these things on a left versus right basis. You know, when Neil Gorsuch was nominated to the Supreme Court, this was after the Republicans and said, make the 2016 election a referendum on Justice Scalia's seat. Let the people decide. And they did. And they President Trump won and won the Senate and so on. So I felt like elections have consequences. But now we're in the reverse situation where everything they said counsels against uh, filling the seat and letting, as you know, Abraham Lincoln did, let the winner of the election nominate and fill the seat. And, um, you know, that to me is principled. It's the right thing to do. And maybe for that reason, they're not doing it. And once you go down that road, you don't recover. And it's one thing to tarnish the impeachment process. It's another to tarnish the U.S. Supreme Court, which plays an outsized role in our lives. Right. And and, and again, like, OK, so we're going down the road. And I think, you know, what you're referring to here is the prospect that um, that we are going to see now kind of an inevitable chain reaction. What I think you believe is an inevitable chain reaction, because this we have discussed is that 
given what Republicans are now doing, given Democrats' reaction to it, that this idea that has been uh, has moved from very rapidly from the fringe of our national dialogue, this notion of of packing the court, this notion of let's call it take away the pejorative language, let's just say, of increasing the number of seats on the court. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, you know, the Supreme Court is not. It's not enshrined in the Constitution that there should be nine seats on the court. It's a matter that can be changed through statute. And, you know, earlier this year, when Pete Buttigieg and some others suggested that the court should be expanded, you know, that was considered a a pretty outré kind of proposition. And a lot of mainstream Democrats, including Joe Biden, uh, suggested that they were either out front said it was a bad idea or suggested that they were very hesitant to do it. Now, you know, it's becoming rapidly becoming conventional wisdom that if, that if Republicans do, in fact, go ahead down the path that they seem to be on right now and confirm Amy Coney Barrett, whether it's before the election or after the election, that if Democrats win the presidency and the Senate, that they will add two or four or some number of seats to the court in order to reclaim the seats that they believe have been stolen from them by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. So I ask you, A, do you think that that is, in fact, inevitable under these circumstances? And B, what you make of it, whether you find it, uh, you know, if it's inevitable, good thing, bad thing, regrettable thing, terrifying thing? What's your view on it? I think it is inevitable, and it breaks my heart. I am not a fan of uh, expanding the size of the Supreme Court. I think it would be tragic because if the Democrats do it in 2021 and go to 13, and then the Republicans will go to 19 in 2028, and then, uh, you know, the Democrats will go to 47 four years later, and then we'll have the Supreme Court of Switzerland, which has like 40 members on it or something like that. And I think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a very bad thing. However, I don't see how it can be resisted given the games and monkeying that the Republicans have done with the Supreme Court. I mean, at this point already, even if you just don't think about Justice Ginsburg's seat, they have filled 14 of the last 18 justices over the last 50 years. They want to make it 15 and 19, and they've gotten there by playing games with some seats. And so I think it will be very hard to resist those calls to expand the court in the abstract, just starting in 2021. But then particularly if the Supreme Court starts to make decisions that are out of step with the American people on Roe versus Wade or whatever. So, uh, you know, I, I worry very much about the consequences of this. And, and maybe you know one of the things I said right away about why I thought Justice Ginsburg's seat shouldn't be filled and that people should start acting like grownups and acting with principle. I'm sitting here thinking about there's a lot of doom and gloom in this outlook for the court and where we're headed and what seems inexorable. And, and I want to try to end on a little slightly more optimistic note if we can. You know, Larry Tribe wrote a book a long time ago called God Save This Honorable Court. As I sit here thinking about it now, you know, I, I guess the question on my mind is, is can if this honorable, if the court is honorable, um, it's not really a matter of God at this point. It's a matter of, you know, can we save this honorable court? Is, is there a way? What's the what's the, the mechanism? What's the, the means by which if we see this thing, this iceberg of the court being uh, denigrated and becoming just another political branch of, of, of government, uh, if we see that on the horizon, we have time, right, to, to, to do something about it, maybe. I can't imagine this is not something you've thought about. Like, what, what can we do to save this honorable court? 
Yeah, I mean, I do. I am optimistic because I do believe, you know, as uh, the, as the saying goes, the arc of justice is long, but it does bend toward justice in this country, and it takes a long time. And right now, it's bending a bit the other way. But the Supreme Court is different than other institutions in which even if you get a bad decision, you have the ability of some justices on that court to write what's called a dissent, to disagree, to, in writing, lay down their view for the ages. That's what Justice Ginsburg so famously did in the voting rights case, Shelby County. And, you know, I have faith that uh, the Chief Justice will try and steer the court in a direction that is going to avoid some of these controversies, at least for a time. But, Ultimately, you know, I think as President Trump has signaled, they've got the votes now to do something more dramatic. And it's going to be up to those three dissenters to try and lay down principles that future jurists are going to pick up. And I have a lot of faith in them. I mean, I think Justice Ginsburg could turn, I mean, Justice Ginsburg's loss is devastating. Uh, there's no doubt. Um, but these three could pick up that mantle. And Justice Kagan in particular, who I had the privilege of working closely with for a while, I think could go down as one of the greatest justices to have ever served uh, on the Supreme Court. And that's possibly true about the other two as well. I mean, they're really just enormously, enormously talented people, and they understand how to speak to the American public. And so I think we're in for a rough ride for a while. But I do think that um, there is some room for optimism, given the personnel on the court, on both the so-called left and the right, um, and the DNA of this country, which I don't think will stand for a Supreme Court that is fundamentally out of step with the American people. Neil Katyal, you're awesome. And um, I, literally, there was no one, as all this has unfolded over the last 10 days or so, uh, from the death of RBG through to the nomination now of Amy Coney Barrett. There's like no one who I've wanted to hear from more than you. And um, it was great to be able to spend this time hearing from you at some length and in some detail. Uh, you know, we're going to do this podcast again at some point where we're just going to talk about Hamilton. That's all we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk awesome. about any of this shit. Because I think, you know, that's really the, that's the other thing that I really feel like we need to really drill down on because, you know, I have a feeling you, probably you're like an Aaron Burr man and we're going to have some things to discuss about that. Definitely um, not, man. Okay. <laughs> it's awesome to talk to you. Thank you, my brother. Thank and, you. Uh, and, we'll, okay. and we'll be back in touch soon. Uh, that is the end for us here at Hell and High Water. Thanks again to Neil Katyal for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a nice rating in the Apple Podcast app. It helps people find out about what we're doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Jake Sendakley and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle research. Sari Soffer is our producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 